At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. W.A.B. in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Imagine 1950s doo-wop with early R&B. Top it off with a genuine punk attitude. And you've got the King Conan barbecue show. The dynamic Canadian duo performs at the Earl this Saturday... And later this hour, they'll talk with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes. Plus, ridiculous news. The good kind. Atlanta comedians Mark Kendall and Bill Worley will tell us about their new podcast. First, the annual Atlanta-based Bronze Lands Film Festival spotlights BIPOC filmmakers, directors, and actors locally as well as around the globe. After a week of workshops and celebrations, the winners were announced, and The Last Bodega in Brooklyn, directed by Mosiah Moonsami, won Best Web Series. The New York City filmmaker joins me now via Zoom. Mosiah, welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having me, Lois. Well, first off, congratulations on winning Best Web Series. The last bodega in Brooklyn is delightful, and clearly you put a lot of heart in it. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. Now, for those who are not from New York City or familiar with the term, how would you define a bodega? A bodega is a small storefront where they're placed all throughout the city. And these are very convenient locations that if you need to go ahead and get a drink, you need to get a sandwich, you need to get some toilet paper, you need to get easy, accessible items that you wouldn't have to go to a large grocery chain, you're going to go to your bodega. Hmm. And what is your personal connection to bodegas? My connection to bodegas is something that I've experienced throughout my life. So I'm actually originally from Florida, but my family's from Brooklyn. So I've been coming up to Brooklyn throughout the course of my whole entire life. And one of the things I would always do with my cousins when we would uh, go out is we'd always go to the bodega. And I just thought it was a really, really, really kind of like special thing because they knew the bodega owner. They'd be like, hey, what's up? And then like they would get something and I 
never had that experience at a grocery store, right? Like in Florida, we wouldn't call it bodegas. We would call it the candy lady, right? <laughs> and the candy lady would just like have a little storefront in a house. So it was like that feeling, but like the bodega was official, official. Um, not to say that the candy lady wasn't official, but you see what I'm saying? Yeah, especially yeah. if the candy lady was giving you candy. Exactly, exactly. So what led you to create this series? I really, you know, this is something that really was bubbling way before I even started to embark on a journey of becoming a filmmaker. When I was visiting Brooklyn every single year, I'm an 80s baby, so I, I was here throughout the course of the 90s. Seeing Brooklyn at first, so my family's from two places, Crown Heights and Bed-Stuy. And when I would come up here, to be honest with you, it was scary. Like, I remember being like, oh, I don't really like going down the block. There was just a lot of things that was happening. And when I saw the first change in the neighborhood, I got really excited because I saw a new building, right? And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Like, there's like something new happening. Now I'm a child. And when I see the first new building, I'm excited. When I see the first new coffee shop and the first new X, Y, and Z coming to the neighborhood, I'm excited because I'm seeing changes in the neighborhood that seem positive. Now, I'm a kid, so I can't really fully understand what's happening. But when I see the new building and I see the new coffee shop, I notice that my family and people that are reflective of my family are not in these places. They're not in the new buildings. They're not in the coffee shop. And so that excitement turned into confusion and confusion turned into anger. And that anger started to bubble because I didn't understand why my family's neighborhood um, was getting changed in a positive way, which one would think on the outside looking in. But then when you get older and you understand what's really happening, it becomes very bothersome. So the inspiration is really the transition of black and brown neighborhoods in Brooklyn, in New York, and throughout the nation and really in the world at this point, and then essentially getting pushed out of our neighborhoods. It's not, it's not so black and white and it's not one dimensional it's many different things that are happening so researching studying having a personal connection through this whether it's through home ownership or through businesses that's happening in my family's neighborhood inspired me when i became a filmmaker to send a message and to send something that i felt was not only representative of my family but families that are experiencing this all over which is actually mm. gentrification yeah and you mentioned the two parts of Brooklyn where your family lived, Crown Heights and Bed-Stuy. I know the homes go, some homes in those areas go for upwards of a million dollars now. A million and up, a million and up to move into the, uh, that's right. So this series focuses on an Afro-Latino family from Crown Heights that owns a bodega in their neighborhood. Why did you want to showcase this series from the perspective of two 20-something-year-old siblings running their family store? Because I think, you know, I think something that, as a filmmaker, I think about a couple things in the stories that I create. One, I think about the extension of my community. I think that we have so much rich culture as Black people that we get put into this container, the container of 
uh, simply America, the container of simply New York, the container of simply LA or Atlanta. But the truth of the matter is, is that we are international people. And I wanted to show the Black diaspora and push it out further. Black people are part of Latino culture. My family, my mother is Panamanian. And my family, specifically my cousins in my age group, were very proud to be Black. And when you create a further push in the culture and the culture sees, oh, like, yeah, there's Afro-Latinos and like, and if you want to get outside of culture and background, we could talk about when you see Serena Williams in tennis or Tiger Woods in golf, this is an expansion of culture. And I think it's so important as a filmmaker to have that responsibilities. Now, the reason I put the sister and brother dynamic is because fundamentally through colonialism, the black family has been ripped apart. So we've seen, we have different structures of the black family with the uh, husband, wife, and the kids. I think that's great. Let's tell it from different sides. Let's show how we're strong as a family from different perspectives. And I think the brother and the sister um, relationship and duo and sibling, whether it's rivalry or, or working as a unit, is something that can be pushed further because we have, you know, many of us share either very close bonds or maybe not any close bonds at all with our siblings. In an episode I watched, it was a lot of fun to see a rather heated discussion, nothing nasty, but just, you know, kind of a typical close sibling rivalry confrontation that takes place in the store while a customer is waiting to pay. <laughs> Did you draw from it? any personal experience on that yes definitely 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 i think it's super super normal to fight with your siblings that's been my experience that's been my experience from other people telling me about you know their their conflict with their siblings i just think it's something i think you fight a certain way with your family that you don't really fight with anybody else and so yes i i definitely drew drew on that <laughs> So the sibling connection has personal meaning. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is Mosiah Moonsami, director of the Bronze Lens winning web series, The Last Bodega in Brooklyn. You star and direct in this miniseries, were other characters in the show inspired by specific people you've met at bodegas around New York? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Not people I've met in bodegas, but people that are close and dear to me. For instance, um, there's a character in the show called OG Goo. And that's actually a very close friend of mine who is Guru Singh. And I wrote him very much of how he is. Guru has this like, he, if you took like DMX and Sadhu Guru and they had a baby, that would be Guru. <laughs> very like raw and crazy and super spiritual. And I just love his energy and I, lo I, I love how he moves. So I wrote specifically very much around him. And yes, in the creation of that, I did that as well with my actors. My actors are people that I've worked with for years, some of them five, six plus years. And I work with the same group of people. And then 
not only do I draw from who they are, but also their interests and expansion as artists. So I try to do a little bit of both. Pull a little mm-hmm. bit from who they are, but also what are you interested in playing? Like, like that fits into the world, not something that like conflicts with it. Mosiah, what have been some of the strangest things you've seen sold or offered at a bodega? Radio appropriate, please. Okay, radio appropriate. I was about to say, I was like, I don't know if I can say this on the radio. Well, you definitely have people that come in and try to sell merch, meaning like they come in and they're like, hey, hey, I got some watches. I got some watches. Mm. Hey, you need, do you need, do you need, do you need this? I got the hookup on this. So you get that a lot. You get like people that are trying to give you items that do not, you know, necessarily come from a legit place at the bodega. I would say that's the strangest things I've been previewed to. How do the city's bodegas stay open during the pandemic? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. You know, the bodegas were like the saviors of New York during the pandemic. And a lot of people don't know this. So when the pandemic happened, New York felt like, it literally felt like the apocalypse was about to happen. Thousands and thousands, I think it was between 30 to 40,000 people left the city at the height of the pandemic. Obviously everything is shut down. It was a massive super spreader. And the people that were open and helping and doing so much extra work the bodega owners because not only did they have a personal connection tied to all the the neighborhoods that they're in but people needed like you know i don't know if you guys were challenged by this but like toiletry items became gold during the pandemic and the bodega owners stayed open and kept on trying to find wherever supply chain they could get this and so not only did they stay open, but uh, these these men and women that own and run these bodegas really were, and truly, I truly believe, essential workers that we never gave any level of like, just like love or like a major shout out for what they kept, which is they were essentially leaders in the community without being even noticed for taking chances with their life, essentially. So you are giving them notice and shout outs in this. Yes, in, exactly. In this totally. web series. Why, yes. why did you create this as a web series instead of a full length film? Because I see, I see Last Bodega in Brooklyn. Honestly, I see it as a TV series. Ah. Yeah, I don't I never saw it as a movie. I saw it as a TV series and ultimately that's where I would like for it to go. I, I I don't think a feature would do it justice because of the amount of characters in the world. I wouldn't be able to have enough time in a feature to do proper character development, but with the TV series and many different seasons, I would be able to do a lot of character development with several different characters. Wow. Well, I wish you luck with that. Thank you. How are bodegas a microcosm of New York or the nation for that matter? They are the segment and they're the piece and they are the waterhole of New York. People talk about New York being a concrete jungle, right? The bodega as the subway is where we all gather. 
it doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how you look. This is where we all go. This is a communal area. And I think that's important because I think we in America get so focused on our differences, right? That we forget the places that actually bring us together. And I would say even more importantly, bodega is, that is our culture, right? Whether you're, you're a black owner and you have a bodega, whether you're Arabic, whether you're Asian, whether you're Latino, who essentially it is the Dominicans that coined it bodega for New York City. But I say that because this is something, this is something that that is very much a thing of from people of color to bring everybody together. And I think that is super important. And I think that's super strong. And I think to your point of how is it reflective of the nature? Well, bodegas are the mom and pops, the small businesses, they are the communal spaces, right? And for us all in, throughout the nation, whether we're starting that small business and trying to really go ahead and have something that draws people in, when a major chain, whether it be a Whole Foods or whether it be whatever type of major corporation comes in, it's hard for these bodegas to thrive. Right. But that's like us throughout the nation that wants to start small businesses or start things that are actually in favor of the community. And I see the bodegas representing us, whether that is the people that are that built this country and, and, and the lay of the land, or it is the representation and symbolism of the immigrant coming here for a better lifestyle. And I think that it serves as I said, as a symbolism to represent all of us in a hope and pursuit of creating something and working against the major structure that makes that difficult for us at times. Mosiah Moon Sammy, writer and director of the Bronze Lens winning web series, The Last Bodega in Brooklyn. The first episode is available for streaming on YouTube and more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, City Lights senior producer Kim Drobes catches up with the one and only King Khan. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. This is City Lights on W-A-B-E. I'm Lois Reitz. It's great to have you along. 
At first listen, one might think the King Common barbecue show is a throwback to the past. Their music combines a heavy dose of 1950s and 60s doo-wop with early R&B and a genuine punk attitude. They've been releasing music and touring for almost two decades. And recently, or better or worse, TikTokers have added their classic Love Me So to millions upon millions of videos. The dynamic Canadian duo comprised of Arish Khan, better known as King Khan, and Mark Sultan, better known as Barbecue, are bringing their energetic and occasionally chaotic show to the Earl this Saturday, September 17th. City Light senior producer Kim Drobes recently caught up with King Khan. Here he explains how the collaboration with Barbecue began. We actually met when we were teenagers. Mark had this punk band in Montreal, and I started a, a group with a, a bunch of other friends. So basically, we've been playing together since, uh, I mean, I was 17. So it must be, you know, it's like over 20 years ago. It's funny because I guess at the time, we were really discovering lots of rock and roll music from, you know, all different eras. And um, we were just really inspired by kind of, in a sense, continuing the tradition of like wild rock and roll, but not being purist about it, you know, like doing it ourselves and in our own uh, way. We definitely have found your own way. Can you elaborate on what you mean by not being purist about it? Well, I mean, I guess there's some people, you know, who when they play music like ours or, you know, or like 60s rock and roll, where there's more kind of attention to like emulating the exact thing, you know, in terms of costumes. And mm. so, for example, our, our stage outfits, you know, which have always been, you know, pushing the envelope of like very weird and bizarre. So there was no formula ever in our band. And we were just always like kind of laughing and not taking life too seriously and like, you know, wearing bondage outfits. And, you know, um, I was dressing like Tina Turner for like 10 years. I, yeah. So we, we, we wanted to take like a non-traditional way of approaching this music. So with the fact that you guys play with other musicians and you take a lot of time apart and then always seem to come back together, do you find that the time apart helps your creativity together? Yes, definitely. I mean, I think that we're both pretty versatile musicians. And, uh, you know, I've been doing the Shrines for a long time and I've uh, recently done a bunch of jazz stuff. So there's always stuff cooking in the kitchen. But I think that what me and Mark do is really... In some ways, it feels like we're like conjuring ancient spirits and or something, you know, when we play, because it's like people really get lost in like the oh, harmonies and disharmonies, you know.
I feel like uh, there's like a quite a powerful spell, you know, and I think I guess both of us are kind of like yin yang in a lot of ways too. So I feel like it's uh, almost like a civic duty to keep playing this music because mm. I feel like popular music has always been this thing that celebrates mediocrity and is like the opposite of what we have been always about. I think in some sense too, like, uh, well, now we've been doing this for over 20 years and uh, Lou Reed was a really big fan of ours and friend. And so I had read that. How did you guys find out that Lou Reed was such a fan? He, he was curating a festival in uh, Sydney, Australia at the Sydney Opera House with his uh, wife, Laurie Anderson. And they, and we were one of the eight bands that they, they chose. And then when we went there, I was hanging out with him a bunch. And like, I did Tai Chi with him. Uh, yeah, it was really, really cool. And it was really kind of crazy too, because in, in some ways I, th- I really feel like he could be like one of the really main influences of what we do. Because it's like, he also had this like deep, deep love for doo-wop. It was awesome to know that he was like a fan, just like he had all all of our different records and like and different incarnations and stuff. And so I met Hal Wilner there as well, who was Lou and Laurie's producer. And then later I co-produced a record of William S. Burroughs' uh, Naked Lunch Recitations with him. So it was, it was awesome. It was kind of like finding this long lost underground rock and roll family and in some sense, you know, I feel like even with this Love You So thing popping up as it did, I have a feeling that, you know, the small percentage of brains that we're occupying in like maybe the minds of like a billion kids or whatever the, the ridiculous number is, you know, even if it was like 1% of like that billion, like would, you know, search for other music that belongs to our genre. So, you know, maybe in like 20 years, there'll be more King Kind of Barbecue spawns than we can handle. <laughs> I certainly hope so. Since you brought up the TikTok thing, can you tell me a little bit about when you first started realizing that this trend was happening? Yeah, it was funny because people were sending me stuff, just completely random stuff like um, Australia. Oh, no, this Italian astronaut was in space, this <laughs> woman, and she's like making a space taco. It's floating in gravity and she's playing Love You So in the background. <laughs> so like there there was this like really surreal thing that people were saying. had no idea what TikTok really was, you know, and I mean, in some sense, too, I trying to stay away from social media stuff a bit more, you know, and like, I'm glad that my children, for example, have like, you know, no interest. Um, How old are they? Uh, 22 and 19. Yeah, they're not really uh, children anymore. <laughs> but they'll always be my babies. Of course. Well, how lucky did you get that they're not crazy for social media? That sounds like the age where they would be. They're they're not only that, but they love they love playing great music. And now they're they're at this age, you know, which is around the age when how old I was when they were born. So mm. it's like now when we hang out, it really feels like I'm hanging out with my my old buddies when we started playing music and stuff together. So yeah, I feel lucky. But uh, yeah, the TikTok thing, it was just like, kind of surreal because as a platform, it's not really a music. I mean, I don't, I don't know how, how to describe what the hell it is, but 
it was really crazy the the numbers that people were shooting at us about how many times it had been used and um i mean in some ways it kind of f***ed up because it's like many songs have been ruined by uh overplay you know mm. but so far it's, it hasn't really affected us in that way whatsoever i can still enjoy the song it's funny that there was like a wave of people just being like i can't i only hear this song every day it's driving me crazy and like you know, you think that those people would actually just maybe stop using TikTok and get on with their lives <laughs> instead of like letting a song uh, destroy their sanity. It's neat, though, like when you think about like how something like that can, you know, become a, a virus. You know, viral is a perfect way of describing it, too, because it really is like a disease. <laughs> <laughs> 100% truth. Well, yeah. I read that you've been working on your long anticipated fifth album and that you guys have set up shop in Berlin. Will you share a little bit about your personal connection to Germany's artistic mecca? Yes. Um, I moved to Berlin in, the, in 2005 and I was in Germany before that for another five years. So I guess at that time, which is let's say 20 years ago, uh, or actually, no, whatever. I've, 17 ish. years ago yeah ish. yeah berlin really reminded me of montreal in terms of the way it was like a very relaxed atmosphere it wasn't like a, a stressful city like you know new york or somewhere or something mm-hmm. like that it was really pretty relaxed and um it was affordable for you know an artist to be able to raise two children i mean things have drastically changed since then but there was also i don't know there was like, like a couple of great uh, venues like for example there was this place called the Bassy club where Kai, me and mark kind of started playing together before that we were doing like our two individual one-man band things and then we would jam a bit and play and so i guess our whole thing kind of you know was born in berlin and um yeah it was really wild like the, the places that we were playing there really had that kind of speakeasy mentality too where it was like dancing and people freaking out until like the wee hours in the morning. I guess also there's something beautiful about, uh, I think Germany, you know, really embraces all sorts of different music, you know, but um, at that time, especially the like rock and roll was really fun. People come out and just like, uh, it's rare, you know, to be able to dance on a dance floor until like, you know, eight in the morning. Mm-hmm. And that's only playing like really good rock and roll music. Mm. You mentioned that both you and Mark have a history of having one-man band setups. And when someone comes to see the King Con and Barbecue show, they'll notice that Barbecue is playing a lot of things at once. I didn't realize that you also had a history in a one-man band. Mine was nowhere uh, as good. I'm not a good drummer at all. But I was trying to do something like that uh, very early on, but I've like long since given that up. <laughs> I have a hard time wrapping my head around the mental space necessary to perform that many tasks well, at once. It's funny because it's like one of the earliest, and my, one of my favorite one-man bands is uh, Hazel Atkins. You know, and he in like the 50s, when he heard Elvis Presley on the radio and the disc jockey was like, this is Elvis Presley. He immediately assumed that Elvis Presley was playing all the instruments at the same time because it wasn't like Elvis Presley and the band. It was his misinterpretation of what he heard. So he tried to emulate that by himself. And like, and he's probably one of, you know, one of the earliest, greatest like rock and roll one man bands. In fact, he does a great version of High School Confidential. If you if you look that up. He does it better than Jerry Lee Lewis, even. 
But um, there's something really cool about the primitiveness of the the setup is that, you know, we're only two people, but like that's often, a, you know, a nice compliment people always give us is that we sound like 10 people. Mm. So um, it's an amazing thing when you can, you know, just like using harmonies and just being able to emulate like a big sound with just the two of us. Yeah, it's pretty fantastic. So you guys are on tour again, and you have a long storied history of touring all over the world. You even shot some footage while you were in the Middle East. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, it was a while back. Um, we were invited to play out there, and it was uh, pretty crazy. I mean, um, got to see, you know, where like Jesus was born you know, and like Bethlehem and stuff. And like, um, it was a pretty interesting time. In fact, actually, you know what? Jakarta was one of my favorite places of our tours. It's, it's all, ultimately, it's the best way to travel because people just, you know, they're really excited to hear the music and stuff like that. So they want to show you their best things in the town, you know, and stuff. And so it's been pretty wild. When you're traveling that much with one other main bandmate, how do you guys navigate bad moods and fights and, and getting past that on the road? Uh, I don't know if we know how to navigate that properly, <laughs> but I mean, I guess the, the older we get, like the more, you know, used to our, you know, different mannerisms and stuff. But again, you know, it's like, you know, we're, we're like brothers, you know, I mean, Mark, we've known each other for so long. And, you know, really grown up together. And now, you know, we both have families. So um, it's actually a pleasure to get in the van and start traveling for this kind of stuff. Because um, ultimately, yeah, it's the greatest escape for us. It's fantastic. You mentioned when you're traveling, what an amazing way to be able to see the world that people show you their absolute best and they're excited to have you. Yeah. I've known that you've been to Atlanta quite a bit. Do you have a favorite thing to do when you're here? Man, Atlanta has a really big place in my heart. Well, obviously because of the Black Lips, but also BJ Womack, who passed away many years ago, was like one of my best friends. And um, mm. so, yeah, there's a lot of sentimental value in, in Atlanta. Uh, it used to be just our stomping grounds. It was like really a lot of fun memories some of like the best fourth of july celebrations i've ever had in my life were in atlanta and um i feel like atlanta is such an important place musically too you know for soul music and georgia itself too it's like the home of the most important soul singers so yeah there's something about you know the air maybe or something i don't know it's it's a it's a beautiful place for us to like hang we have just so many memories of like debaucherous times with the black lips and the you know our, our crew of like delinquents <laughs> well we are very much looking forward to welcoming you back one final question before i let you go when and why did you originally take on the moniker of King Khan? So way back when I did that for anonymity at one point, I was looking for a name and I used to call myself Black Snake and my mom really hated it because in India, like Black Snakes are, you know, killing people and stuff and cobras mm -hmm. and blah, blah, blah. So when I moved to Germany, I was like, okay, I'll change this up. And someone had given me a Kaiser helmet. It was a plastic one. I used to wear it all the time going grocery shopping and <laughs> hanging out on streets or whatever. And so people were always like calling me Kaiser all the time, like King, you know? So I was like, I should incorporate that into my name. So, so yeah, it came out of that. So of if being you had to be King of something, what would you be King of? Oh, um, 
deliciousness. <laughs> I like it. Um, speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes, the King Common Barbecue Show will be at the Earl in East Atlanta this Saturday, September 17th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. Coming up, Atlanta comedians and writers Mark Kendall and Bill Worley will tell us about their new podcast, Ridiculous News, Amplifying Atlanta. This is 90.1 WABE. is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Ridiculous has become a positive description. Think ridiculously cool or ridiculously gorgeous. Well, now ridiculous is a positive take on the news. Ridiculous News podcast is a cool podcast with a lot of humor focused on each week's crazy headlines. Earlier this year, comedians, writers, and co-founders of Cool 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 Productions, Mark Kendall and Bill Worley, joined iHeartRadio to create the podcast, Ridiculous News. They cover everything from Ms. Pac-Man being inducted into the video game Hall of Fame, all the way to creating more inclusive spaces. Mark and Bill join me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thanks so much, Lois. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it's an honor to be here. Thank you, Lois. How did you come up with the idea for Ridiculous News? Well, we're a part of a really awesome team over at iHeartMedia. Ben Bolin and Noel Brown are, are the creators of the podcast Ridiculous History, and that did really well. And so they started to expand the uh, ridiculous universe. And so <laughs> there are now several ridiculous podcasts. So you also have Ridiculous Romance, which is a fantastic podcast examining uh, amazing stories of romance throughout history. And that's hosted by Diana and Eli Banks. There's also Ridiculous Crime, which is a crime-based podcast. And that's hosted by Zarin Burnett and Elizabeth Dutton. And then Ben and Noel approached us about uh, creating ridiculous news. And so that's how that came about. And so Bill and I, we've been making that podcast and it's been so fun creating that with Ben and Noel as our executive producers, as well as Tari Harrison, our producer, and uh, our amazing researcher, Casey Sharon Willis. Would you take us through that research, the process, and how you decide on the topics to address each week? I mean, there's no shortage of crazy headlines to choose from. <laughs> 
Right. I think we we work with Casey, like Mark said, who's an amazing researcher. And we'll kind of, we have a text thread going on and she'll pull some stuff that she thinks is interesting. Or if we're seeing something during the week, we will write it down. We have some Google Docs and we'll say, oh, honestly, a lot of times there's, to your point, Lois, there's so many fascinating things that we have to cut a couple and pick some favorites. And it's nice because we, we try to avoid, you know, the mainstream stuff and get to the fun nitty gritty things, you know, like the fact that Doritos has five fewer chips per bag due to inflation, you know, which saves them just a little bit of money, 50 million a year, just fun stuff like that. And then going into more deeper dives about more serious topics as well, because we don't want to shy away from those things that are kind of below the fold, but need to be addressed. Mark, Treating those serious topics with humor is something you've been doing for quite a while in your comedy. I'm reminded of videos you made after the murder of George Floyd and during our racial reckoning time after the pandemic began, taking down monuments. You addressed that with putting a statue of LeBron on top of Robert E. Lee. Am I remembering that correctly? Yes, Lois, you're remembering that correctly. And <laughs> and that is a, a, a short film, a sketch that I'm so proud of. And a big part of that is because I got to make that uh, with Bill. And that's actually what makes uh, making the podcast so much fun is that, you know, we've already been making these videos together that address topics that are important to us, whether it's, you know, things that are happening in the news, things related to politics, things happening in Atlanta. And so the podcast is another great way for us to explore these topics that are sometimes serious. And something else that's really great about the podcast format in particular is that you can have a little bit more time than maybe a shorter sketch to delve a little deeper into some of those details. And depending on what the topic is and things like that, we're also able to bring in guests. We're able to bring in experts and ask them questions and, and, and talk about these topics that are so interesting to us, whether it's talking about dance, you know, we've been able to bring in the incredible dance artist and choreographer India Childs, or we've been able to talk to and say Ufad of New Georgia Project, talking to her about like, you know, the importance of elections or, or, or voting and civic engagement. And so the podcast is a great way for us to continue to explore uh, both comedy, but as well as topics and issues that are important to us. I love the ridiculous news intro song for each episode. Oh, Who created that? Oh my gosh, Lois, I'm so glad that you enjoy that interest song. We love it too. So that's from our friend Four Eyes, who's an amazing musician, rapper. He's a, he's a brilliant Atlanta rapper. He's been in the Atlanta rap scene for a long time. And what, what I love about Four Eyes, in addition to just his um, skills as a lyricist, is that he can rap in so many different genres. And by, by that, I mean, you know, he has songs out there where he's talking about like serious topics, but he can also be just like incredibly funny. With amazing and crazy topics to pick and to choose, you are now tuned in to Ridiculous News. With interesting views on breaking the rules of broadcasting and all sorts of wild reports to keep us laughing. With funny, off-brand, upbeat journalism, the strange and unusual stories of what we give them. When it's all about ridiculous news everywhere, we talking about ridiculous news over here. And so I thought that his voice was a perfect one to open the podcast for every episode. Oh, it is fantastic. 
If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with the Atlanta comedians Mark Kendall and Bill Worley. Their new podcast is Ridiculous News. Tell us about the weekly roundup. Sure. So that's a weekly roundup. We put that out every Thursday. And so that is an episode where we're just kind of talking about headlines that happened recently. So it's kind of like a roundup of the week. And our episodes are normally divvied up into different sections. So we'll kick things off with talking about like little news nibbles. So those are like quick, interesting headlines that caught our eye for some reason. But then we also talk about other things in weekly roundup episodes. So like we'll call our main story for that episode, the main course. We've had a chance to talk about some really interesting topics on that. For, for example, Bill, uh, you found a great story recently that we had just talked about, about, you know, a group of Black mothers that had used mushrooms, uh, experimenting with uh, mushrooms as a way to uh, heal from the, the things that they were going through in life. And it was a really interesting exploration about how this particular demographic who you don't normally hear about using that particular drug using it. And, and it was, that was a cool uh, story or an example of something we've talked about as well. Hmm. Some hilarious characters, fictional characters, join the conversation during each episode of the podcast. Are those characters following a script or is that completely improvised? The, the the nicest thing you could say to us, Lois, is that it sounds like they're following a script because they are <laughs> <laughs> they are completely improvised. Uh, we've had a lot of guest appearances from like Batman, you know, wild CEOs. Uh, recently, on, on a recent episode, that you know, the uh, University of South Carolina Gamecocks was is trying out a new mascot, and the, the students have voted for the mascot Cock Commander. And so he was a visitor on the latest episode, and he was not who you would think he is. It was a wonderful guest. So we just, we'll pull it, and, and it's all improvised. Uh, Mark is such a genius, a comedic genius, and so fun to improvise with. Um, and a lot of times we'll have improvisers on the show, and they'll be able to throw in, like Jamie, for example, and they'll be able to throw in their own characters. But yeah, it's it's not scripted. It's uh, it's it, not out of laziness. It's just us just having fun. What are some of the deep dive episodes you've explored? I loved potato chips. And um, oh, I have to go sideways <laughs> a little bit here. I know Mark went to Northwestern University. I was born and grew up in Chicago. Mark, do you remember Jay's potato chips? You know, Lois, I don't remember oh. Jay's potato chips, but I wish I did. I wish I did now. Oh, my God. I will have to get you some the next time. They're local and, you know, perfection in the form of the ideal balance of fat, salt, and carbohydrate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but you were talking about the joys of discovery and salt and vinegar. Mm -hmm. I mean, talk about the deep dive into potato chips. And was that real about the potato chip bags becoming sleeping bags for homeless people? Yeah, so that was a this, a story that we had found about the material in bags. I guess some 
part of the foil insulates heat well. And so that was a form of technology that I suppose had been floated around the internet. And so there's a particular person that used that to start making sleeping bags for folks. Yeah. So it's really interesting how you find different stories related to chip bags and you go down these really interesting <laughs> tangents, you know, beyond simply just potato chips strictly as a snack, you know? Well, I had no idea that was for real. And it, it's quite <laughs> fascinating to learn that. So that's the component of ridiculous news that really you are bringing truth to light or to sound waves, I guess, in addressing these stories that are for real. Yeah. And in, in, in trying to highlight stories that are uplifting as well is also something that we try to do so, or, or for example, at the end of each episode, we have a segment that we enjoy called the spring of inspiring inspirations, because we realize that, you know, week to week, the news can bring you up or down, you know, a lot of times down more often. So we, we try, so we try to make sure that we end our episodes with a, a positive note with the spring of inspiring inspirations. But yes, also to address what you had said, earlier trying to find good, interesting information to share with our listeners. How has this podcast been enlightening? Oh, there's so many ways. I think, you know, these amazing stories that when you dive deep into them and these fascinating things that you learn about, it also makes it easier to have conversations meeting people, you know, because we're you have something interesting to talk about. Like a, a, one I bring up a lot is there was a guy in Germany who got 90 COVID shots so that he could sell forged passes, which is just so bizarre and perhaps the next supervillain in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> no uh, kidding. <laughs> you know, so it's fun to learn about this stuff that's below the fold. And then getting to talk to people like Ensei Ufat or Rebecca DeHart, who's you know currently helping run the Georgia Democrats. We're going to have Janine Abrams on soon, which is super exciting. And just the knowledge that they drop about, you know, civic engagement, how important that is, is always, always educational and just uh, makes me feel like I should be doing more. Yeah. I, I got to say the thing that's been really enlightening beyond just hearing about all the amazing stories that we do each episode is getting the chance to get to know our, our guests better and learn more about whatever it is, you know, that they are an expert on. And it's been cool because, you know, we've been able to talk to people that maybe we've known for a while, but then we talk to them about a level of, or an area of their expertise and you learn so much more about this person, you know, for example, uh, we had on a guest, Jonathan Blowski, who's an amazing Atlanta filmmaker and actor. I've known Jonathan for a long time, but hearing about his acting process and how he goes about making films, I'm like, wow, I've learned so much more about this person or our researcher, uh, Casey Sharon Willis, who is our researcher and a brilliant podcast artist in her own right. Uh, she has a podcast called You Heard Me Right, which is amazing. You got to check it out. We invited Casey on the podcast and we're like, Casey, we'd love to do a deep dive episode with you. You can talk about whatever you want. What would you want to do? And she's just like, I want to talk about like puppet themed horror movies. <laughs> we're like, All right, cool. So, so we, so we had a deep dive episode where we really looked into like some of the more like finer satirical elements of the Chucky films, you know, and like, and I really learned a lot from that, you know, because it's like you think about Chucky as just being this 
or for me, it's just like, oh, it's a it's a horror movie from the 80s that I remember. But it was really getting at some interesting issues of like commercialism and, and, and mass media that I thought was great. And I learned about Casey from that in the process, which was which was real fun. Comedians and podcast hosts, Mark Kendall and Bill Worley. More information about their new podcast, Ridiculous News, is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about the new Ken Burns documentary on PBS, The U.S. and the Holocaust, premiering this Sunday on WABE-TV. City Light's senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at WABE.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E.